as I was beginning to say, <laughs> we find they're on the, on the way to Canaan. And uh, they've already attempted a, uh, once, and, and God brought them full circle back to Kadesh. And they attempted again on their own strength, I believed. And the Edomites, uh, the brother of their long-lost, uh, you know, fa- patriarch father of Jacob, uh, his brother Esau, the Edomites, would not let them pass through the land. And so tonight we see where they continue to pick back up and some of the ongoing uh, journey here on their way to Canaan. And as they're journeying, they're finding that because they could not go through that part of the land of the Edomites, they had to turn around and go back into the wilderness a little bit to come around to find another direction to come into the promised land, or at least start going in that direction. And that can be very discouraging uh, when you think you're just making way in your, your walk with the Lord and doing what he wants you to do, and you hit a roadblock and you feel like you have to turn around because you didn't quite do it right or it wasn't in the will of God and you had to turn around and come back. Almost like you feel like you're taking a few steps back before you were redirected by God into a different direction. And it's kind of what we will see tonight in some of this here. But follow along with me here in Numbers chapter 21, verse 1. Uh, one of the challenges going to the promised land and continue to be in the will of God, uh, you will meet resistance. And ooh, we see it once again here. The king of uh, Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the road to uh, uh, Theramim. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. Verse 2. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver these this people into your my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Hormah. So we see here a king, King Arad, the Canaanites, Seeing and fearing of the people of God coming through, and they obviously knew what God was doing in and through their lives, and he immediately thought they were going to take over, and uh, they are going to jump at this, and they, they attacked the Israelites, they took some of the people, and the response was that then the Israelites cried out to God and said, if you will just let us fight these people and win, we will burn down their cities so there's no one can use it. And it, it, when you first listen to that and you kind of read that and you're like, why would they, of all the vows of, of, of asking God that they would just destroy these, this, these cities completely, why would they do that? But as this new generation of Israel begin their approach into the promised land, this new generation encounters this first hostile army that they have to deal with, even though it's a small one relative, uh, the, Canada, the king Arad in the south here, but after having some of these men lost to this little battle that Arad came against them, uh, they, they, they really extremely said, God, just we'll devote the cities of uh, King Arad to you completely and we'll destroy them. God, you know, listened to them and actually said, okay, I'll give you the power and the ability to conquer this enemy, this small enemy, and you'll do and see if you're going to follow through with your vow. And they sure did. They, they, they wiped out those cities. Uh, but it's kind of strange in a way when you think about it and thinking about um, You kind of see it in perspective the fact that 
why are they conquering and why are they battling and what would be the purpose why they would go to, to war and battle? Was it for the right reasons? I, I kind of pondered on it and said, you know, they were kind of making a vow that says, we're not doing this to gain. We're not looking to fight and just to fight these people so that we win so we can get the booty, get, get all their, their wealth and all their goods and take their people. They were saying, God, we're just going to do this because we're just uh, to take hold of the land like you're saying, and we're not doing it for any personal gain here. And so that's how it's, I kind of see when you read this is that they were not fighting the battle for their own profit, but only for the glory of God. And that was the only reason why they were going to go into war and wipe out these people is for the, to get God the glory that God was working through those people. Uh, and so they... Obviously, you know, it says, it says that the name of that place was called Hormah. And it's interesting is it was Hormah that Israel was defeated in their ill-advised attempt to enter the promised land just not too long ago by force. They were going to force their way in and they got rejected very quickly. Uh, and now, you know, they were going to go in through the, you know, originally, but it was by faith, and they kind of rejected that. So now God has brought them back to that same place once again and given them a victory, a real term, a point of, in, the, in, the, in the nation of Israel at this point, because now they're truly doing it for God and truly being faithful to God and truly doing it out of no other profit or reason other than to please God and to do what God's called them to do. All the other times, they rejected by faith to go into it. They were fearful. They rejected because they wanted to do it by force and force their way in, and God re- rejected that because it wasn't God's way. And now this third time is almost like a charm, and uh, God gives them victory. Verse 4, then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. You know, sometimes it can be very discouraging uh, when you're on the way of doing what God's called you to do, and, uh, and if you don't stay focused on who God is in your life and focus on the fact that he's in control and that he is a God of a, a provider and a sustainer and a protector and you go down the list of all the characteristics of God and if you take your mind off of that and you just put it on the fear factor of what's in front of you, the circumstance or situation, you find just like the Israelites here. They become very discouraged on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Make note of that. Um, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes with this worthless bread. <laughs> so this next generation of people really are acting just like mom and dad from their last generation because they're just emotional responses. But they take it a whole nother level, this generation. This whole other generation, if you remember... When the people of the last generation who were dying off in the wilderness, as God said would, be, would happen, when they went against what they didn't like and, and they were just emotional, they just complained to Moses and Aaron. They never went, they always went directly to them, but it was an indirect attack against God where they didn't have faith in God and what God was doing. Well, this generation takes it another level of seriousness here because the scripture tells us the people spoke against God and against Moses. So they had no problem just calling out God that you, you're not a God that we want to follow is what they're saying. 
They don't believe God. They have a lot of unbelief here because they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Sounds just like the other generation. For there is no food or no water. Sounds like another challenge in their lives. They didn't learn it. They didn't learn the last two or three times when they didn't have food and water. And God came through and provided food and water. And they 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 just didn't learn from the past to say God was faithful then. And then. And then. And then. Why wouldn't God be faithful now? Why are they so emotional? And that's the key. They're so emotional versus being solid on the understanding of who God is. It's called unbelief when they're so emotionally responsive. It's unbelief. But it takes it to the next level. Our soul, our inner person, who we are, loathes. Not just discontent, but loads this worthless bread. Who gave him the worthless bread? <laughs> the manna was given by God miraculously, and they had the nerve to call it a worthless bread. Are they out of their minds? But we can be the same way, can we not? God provides us miraculously for us, provides all our needs. And then we sit there and we loathe our life. We loathe our situation in life, our circumstances in life, and all these other things. Nothing new. It may package differently today in our, our, how we respond, but it's the same response when your unbelief is dominating you versus your belief in who God is. See, these people had gone far out of their way because they... The Edomites had refused to pass them through, allow them to pass them through there in chapter 20. They had to go around. They're back into the wilderness, going all the way around to be able to go back into Canaan, and it brought discouragement. And once they got discouraged, they got all emotional. <laughs> That's a pattern that they had, and many people have, when your faith is not strong. Discouragement, because it's not going the way you want it to go, turns into un- that unbelief to turn into going against God or any God's people. You'll turn on them. They had a reason to be discouraged. They weren't able to go into the into the and They had to go now turn around, and go back into the wilderness a little bit, but that still did not give them an excuse. They had no excuse for their discouragement. They faced a real challenge. And sometimes that is not fun at all to have to deal with in our lives. Yet they had no excuse for not trusting God. Discouragement is not a reason to distrust God. And not looking for victory through it all. We must look for victory through it all. God is in control. God is the one guiding you. If you're willing to be in the will of God and follow, you have victory. God's going to work it out if you believe. But sadly, this new generation sounded like the old. They literally turned around and not only go against Moses, but right, right in the very in the scripture says he went up against God and against Moses. I mean, they're acting really worse than their fathers did. Eight previous messages that we read. The children of Israel described how they went against Moses and against Aaron and against God really indirectly. But here, they literally, literally speaking against God and his provision for them. And it was, it was causing them to loathe what God gave them. This is a major problem for them. 
This is worse than their fathers, and the, God had to deal with these people, and that whole generation doesn't even get to go into Canaan because of their disbelief. So what do you think this new generation is going to deal with, and how is God going to deal with this factor? We'll see that right now in the next verse, verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. <laughs> God, I loathe what you're providing. God, I'm so discouraged of what you're doing. And they face the consequences. God literally brought in fiery serpents. What's fiery? What is fiery serpents? Well, some believe it's because that when they bit, it burnt. I don't see that. And I'll show you why in the, verses, the next set of verses. But I think it was red in color or burning, burning color because um, <laughs> these, these, these serpents that God brought in, literally I believe God was using them to take out any remaining first generation of people out because none of the people could live that first generation to go into the promised land. It could only be the new generation that would go in there. So I think God used it for a purpose, and the ones that were complaining were still some of the remaining of the old, the fathers, the, and, and this next generation was just listening and, and kind of getting wrapped up. But here's why I say I think it's because of the, of, uh, of the color and the burning ambers or the burning hotness of, of these snakes is what describes them as fiery serpents. Because it says, therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Oh. Whoa, what happened here? There's a response from God's response. They, the people, came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. He's going to make a fiery serpent. Same terminology, same wording here. That's why I don't think it's about biting and it's burning and hurt. He's supposed to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. So it's not alive. So it's not about biting and, and it's burning when it bit, but literally in, in color and nature or you know, that heatness of it. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a, a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had, had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So in this new generation, they responded correctly to God's judgment and correction. They immediately repented and acknowledged, we have sinned. We have sinned. It was immediate. They knew they were against God in their reaction, their emotions, their discouragements, their, their, their just accusations. They knew they were wrong and they were going to face the consequences, and they did with the fiery serpents. But it brought them to their knees and they asked Moses to pray and to intercede for them that God would uh, find show mercy. And God certainly did show mercy because why? Because they had softer hearts and quicker repentance than their fathers ever did. None of the previous generation responded with repentance and a soft heart from the judgment of God. 
<laughs> they, just, they just wanted to stop. They didn't want to have a change of heart in regards to anything. Here, this generation was not as stubborn in regards to the response here, and they did repent. And so they asked Moses to pray. And of course, Moses, with the right heart before the people, obviously went to intercede for them to God. But God commanded Moses to make a serpent. Moses makes it out of bronze, which is important to know in the scripture. Because once he made this serpent and put it on the, uh, out of bronze, he was to put it on a pole so that those who looked upon it could be saved, and they were. Very important here. Because this was an unusual direction from God in regards to his miracle resulting in this because it's not what God had shown a pattern to do this. This was not any logical logical connection of why God would have done this. No one in their right mind would have said, well, you're going to take one of these serpents that have been biting us and you're going to put it on a pole and anyone who looks at us is going to be saved? Isn't there a different way, another way that we can be saved from these serpents? From the judgment? Because that's what serpents were recognized of, is judgment. Most people, if you look at that and the concept of it, would be refusing to even look or even, even if they didn't look, they would die. But there's some people probably would have foolishly thought, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to look at that thing and trust in that serpent and, and think I'm going to get saved. But you have to understand, if they didn't do what God said to do to be saved, they would die. They had to take a step of faith and literally look up at that serpent on the pole and believed if they recognized and believed what God said, they would be saved. And if they didn't do it by faith, they were surely to what? Die. So the people couldn't do anything to save themselves from the serpents. There was no medicine they could take. Maybe by luck I won't get bit by the this, this serpent and won't die. They didn't go by luck. They didn't go by medical miracles or any person who says I can give you a, a, some kind of a mud bath to save you from it or you know suck it, the venom out of you. Whatever. They had to, could do nothing to save themselves. If they got bit... They had to put their faith completely in what God had provided. The serpent on the pole. Now Jesus referred to this remarkable event from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see it in the book of John. John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 says, And as Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Eternal life. Even Jesus himself showed what God was teaching them in the Old Testament, here in the book of Numbers, coming out of the wilderness, going into the promised land, what they needed to do to have to be saved. And Jesus referenced it here. So Jesus clearly said there is a similar similarity between Moses, what Moses did, and what Jesus did on the cross. 
But now, or how can a serpent have a some similarity of who Jesus is? Serpents are often used as pictures of evil in the Bible. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We also see serpents are referenced as evil in Revelation as well, chapter 12, verse 9. But the bronze, however, is a metal associated with judgment in the Bible. When you see bronze, that means judgment. And because bronze was, must be made by passing through the fires of judgment, so a bronze serpent does speak of evil, but evil having been judged. That's the connection. Just as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross, and our sin was judged in Jesus, a bronze serpent is a picture of evil judged and dealt with. Jesus went to the cross and became sin for us and was then judged for us. Now today, you notice in uh, many times in the medical world, we'll see this same picture, the same tradition of that serpent being wrapped around a pole, and it's a source of an ancient figure of healing and medicine, and you'll see that on medical emblems today uh, in the medical world. Now, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he would, he would live. He had to look. He had to look upon. And the people were saved not by doing anything, but by simply looking to the bronze serpent. They had to trust what God had provided and only trust what God had provided for them to be saved. It says, as it says in Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you, all, you, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Very clear in Isaiah 45 too. We might be even be willing to do a hundred things to earn our salvation. But God commands us to only trust in him. To just believe. To look to him for salvation. That is how one is saved. And there is no works. There is nothing you can do. To earn salvation. Only believe. To look upon Jesus on the cross. So God commanded Moses to make an image of, this, of a serpent. And many people will say, well, isn't he creating an idol or an image, an idol? Isn't that forbidden in the scriptures? Yes, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. But this was not an idol. This was a symbol sanctioned by God that they could look to in faith and be saved. God ordained it. God designed it. God said to do that. It was different than an idol where man is saying, I will do this. God said, I will do this. But sadly is that many of the God-ordained symbols are then made into idols by man. If you remember King Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18.4, he says, 
broken pieces, the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. And that's the problem with man. They could take something that is good that God has done and use it and turn it into an idol and worship it and use it in the wrong way. They'd rather worship the symbol now becomes an idol versus worshiping God. And yes, the symbol points them to God. Now, on their way to the promised land, we see here in verse 10 through 20, the journey into Moab that's part of on the way there is to go through Moab. And it says, now the children of Israel moved on and camped in Obot, and they journeyed from Obot and camped in uh, Abram in the wilderness, which is east of Moab, toward the sunrise. From there, they moved and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they moved and camped on the other side of Ernan, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites, for Ernan in the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said, the book of the wars of, of the Lord, Wahib and Surfa, the brooks of Ernan, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies in the border of Moab. From there they went to Be'er, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, all of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank and dug by the nation's no nobles by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matana, from Matana to uh, Nahalel, from Nahalel to Bamoth, Bamat, and from Bamat in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. So besides the names of the places Israel passed through on their way towards the promised land, there's a brief passages here of poetry that is added by the writer. And it says that it was recording that, that sense of sensitivity of, of elevation, of excitement about feeling about going into the promised land and adding poetry to this, this very difficult times. But the one thing I will draw your attention to is verse 14 is the book of the wars of the lords. Some have used mentions of the books like this in the Bible as an argument that the Bible is not complete or incomplete book and must be supplemented. And that gives you justification why you need to bring the book of whatever inside the book of Mormon, the book of this, the book of that. And we have to supplement. But that's not doesn't justify why you would do that. The Bible is complete. All this is doing is mentioning a particular book that was out there that the God is referencing, the book of the wars of the Lord. So the Bible doesn't mean that the book 
belongs in the Bible. We would love to see and read these ancient literatures that are available all around the place, but it did not lose, not the history, but it didn't qualify or by God and by the, the inspiration of the, in, the, the, the Holy Spirit saying this is truth that is to be add part of the Canaan or part of the Bible. It's just something of history of note. And it was referenced just here in Numbers. In fact, Paul even referenced a pagan poet uh, in, in Acts that would, you know, doesn't mean that the poet and everything the poet wrote was something of, that was of God. It was, just, it was just a noted of what was happening historically in the time and what the pagans were writing to. In verse 21, then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. So here they are asking, once again, it's not the Edomites, now the Amorites. Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into the fields or the vineyards. We will not drink the water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. Sounds very familiar, does it not? Same deal, we'll touch nothing. No touchy. We won't. We just want to pass through, please. Verse 23, but Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through the, his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. So as was the case with the Edomites, the Amorites would not let Israel pass through the land to go into the promised land. And even though the Israelites promised... I promise we won't touch you. No expense, no troubles to you. We're just passing through. Didn't help. So while the Edom, Edom passed, passively refused the, the Israelites to come through, the Amorites were not so passive. They actively attacked Israel and King Sihon led the battle. Now this incident is even more interesting when we consider Deuteronomy chapter 2 verse 30 when Sion the king of Hishbon uh, would not let us pass through for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart abstinent that he might deliver him into your hand. So we get a little bit more clarity of why the king was a little more aggressive than the Edomites. Is because God intervened and actually hardened the heart of this king, King Sion, to cause him to come against his own people so that the people could battle and to win to move through. It's an interesting incident that God would harden the heart of Sion so he would provoke the battle so that he, the king would lose so Israel could gain his land, and to be able to press forward into the promised land. It, wasn't, it was not unrighteous of God to harden the heart of Sion because Sion was not originally favorable at all for the Israelites to come through. He had already said, absolutely not. You're not coming through this place. So God didn't make his heart harden toward the people. He was already said you couldn't come through with this. But that wasn't how it happened, was it? It's, he brought this, this, this Sion 
coming against the people. So God just gave over, uh, gave him over to his own evil heart against God's people. He says, okay, I'm going to take, I picture it this way. Here's, you're coming saying to the king, you're negotiating. I just want to pass through. I won't touch you. I won't touch you. I won't touch your vineyard. I won't touch your vineyard. I'm just going through. And the person at the very end saying, the king saying, absolutely not. I don't like you. I don't want you near me. I don't want you coming to my land. I don't want anything to do with you. God's sitting here going, not a good heart. Not letting my people through. Okay, I'm just going to take the protection away from my people. I'm going to take my hand away. And that is going to cause and embolden and harden his heart to come against my people. And when that happens, my people are going to take over and wipe them out. So God says, you want your evil heart? You want your evil heart desires to wipe out my people? Okay, I'll take a little bit of, of uh, my hands away so that you are not restrained. And I'm just going to let you, just as I pull back, you're going to come forward and take over and try to take over my people, but you're not going to happen. In verse 24, we see, Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possessions of the land from uh, Arnon and to the Jap. Jabbok, as far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So Israel took all these cities, and, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, the Hishbon, and all its villages. For Hishbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and has taken all his land from his hand, as far as the Arnon. Verse 27, therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, come to Hishbon, let it be built, let the city of Sion be repaired. For fire went out from Hishbon to, uh, to a flame from the city of Sion, and it consumed Er of Moab, the lords of the heights of the Arnon. Verse 29, woe to you, Moab, you have, you have perished, O people of Chemosh. He has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity and to Sion, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Hishbon has perished as far as Dibon. Then we laid haste as far as Nophah, which reaches to Medabah. These, thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Moses sent to spy out Jazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. So we see now uh, a better understanding of God's favor and mercy to his people, Israel. And before they faced the hardened warriors of Canaan further into the land, you see that God is preparing them for bigger tests and challenges. Little tiny war, little tiny war. He's getting them prepared. A little war, a little challenge, a little enemy coming after him, a little test here and a little there. It builds up so that he, they can handle the huge test, the big enemy that will attack them eventually when they get up there into the, the warriors of Canaan. So God gave them these smaller foes, these smaller battles to fight. We see how foolish the unbelief of the previous generation was. 
how it kind of spilled over initially to affect the new generation. And God had to really show them that this is not how you're to live. They repented, they changed, they said, and that is it. They will still have some challenges in the future, but again, God's working in their lives. And the land of the Amorites later becomes the possession of Israel. And the tribe of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh receives this land that we're referring to. And we see in our passage about this fire went out from Hishbon, or woe to Moab. The passage of poetry are meant to show what a mighty people the Amorites were in contrast and how glorious Israel's victory was over them. That they were mighty people, but God was with his people and God took care of his enemy and overthrew them to fulfill the will of God that God was going to do. And it just, again, strengthened and deepened the faith of the Israelite people to know they can go to the next battle or go to the next step on the way uh, into Canaan. And finally here, verses 33 through 35, it says, And they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, and he and all his people to battle at uh, Edria, Edri, I think it's Hadrii. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Hishbon. Now he's encouraging him. These people are going to come against you, but let me remind you about the last enemy, the last battle, and how I was with you, and you were able to do it, and you're going to take over this guy as, just like you did with Sion, the king, of, uh, the king as well. Do not worry, keep moving forward. Verse 35, so they defeated him and his sons and all his people until there was no survivor left him and they took possession of his land. So again, another battle that Israel did not provoke. They did not provoke any of these battles. These were, they were just moving forward. They're on their way to where God told them to go and on their way in the will of God, doing what God's called them to do. They re- meet resistance. They meet the enemies. They meet the foes. They meet the battles. One by one is going to come after them for being in the will of God, going the direction that God wants them to do. They're going to meet resistance. It's going to happen. And we see that God brought them one battle to the next battle to the next battle. And each one, it's a little one here, a little one there, to build up their faith and trust in God as they get to the bigger enemies that they will end up having to battle. But this land also became part of Israel as they went through. And a portion of the inheritance of the Transjordan tribes were now theirs as they won that battle. Now the new generation of children of Israel are making wonderful progress in their journey on their way to Canaan, to the promised land, experiencing victory after victory after victory. Yet their challenges are not over. As we, if you read ahead, you will notice in the chapters that are, are in front of us, uh, they're going to hit some, some really challenging times. But let me encourage you, my brothers and sisters, it's the same as our walk. You're on our, we're on our way, right? We're on the way to heaven. That's the, that's our, our, that is where we are just focused upon. We're on the way to heaven.
And in the meantime, as we walk and journey, sojourn in this land, this wilderness experience, we're going to hit resistance. We're going to have enemies that are going to come against us. There are people who are not going to like us being in the will of God and doing what God's called us to do. You must stay focused. And just like the people here, the Israelites, they are on their way to the promised land. And we are too. Amen.